you very much for, for joining us this morning on uh, this webinar, which is uh, developed by Amberley Advisory in partnership with the uh, uh, Emerging Markets Investors Alliance. So I thank you, Andrew, for, for being here. We are going to be tackling an issue uh, which is very important today, especially uh, uh, as part of the uh, attempts to secure social license to operate and sustainability uh, value, sustainable value creation for communities and companies on different projects, which is the interaction with First Nation and Indigenous communities. And I'm very uh, happy to be surrounded by a, a set of, of experts uh, that will talk about this issue with us today. Uh, as I said, this webinar is part of a larger series. We talk about community consent late last year with uh, uh, Columbia University and Insuko. Then we continued on issues of transparency of supply chains. Uh, last month, we'll have a series of events on local content and on, on, uh, on social uh, partnership and social create value creation for communities in the coming weeks and months. Uh, and on this one, again, Andrew is joining me as my alter ego. Uh, Andrew, thank you for being here. And maybe, Andrew, if you want to introduce a little bit uh, the Alliance and, and, and our panelists for this morning, that'd be, that'd be great. Sure, I'll do that. And it's great to be back with you, Remy, and have another, what I'm sure will be a fascinating discussion about uh, social issues in the extractive industries. Um, something we look at a lot at the Emerging Market Investors Alliance. Um, and for those of you who don't know, we, we're an NGO that connects investors with companies and governments, uh, as well as policy experts to look at a range of sustainability issues across different sectors, but extractive industry is a very important one uh, for us and for developing countries, uh, which is what our, our focus is. Um, and so happy to be back with Remy to, uh, to, to look at this very important issue about um, indigenous um, uh, connections and uh, relations and, and best practice in that area um, have four a uh, very impressive panelist here, uh, which Remy has brought together. Um, so I'll just introduce very briefly, I won't say much, and I'll, I'll let you do um, kind of elucidate more, um, each of you. But uh, first we have Karen Ogan-Tabs of the West Sweat and First Nation, uh, also CEO of the First Nations LNG Alliance. Um, so really looking forward to your perspective, uh, Karen, on, uh, on engagement um, with the extractive companies and the issues that you have there. Uh, we have uh, Harry Redenberg of the University of Calgary, a uh, great expert um, on community work, community reconciliation uh, in this sector. Um, Heather Lawrence joins us from the corporate side um, of Tech Resources Limited, um, and she is corporate manager of Indigenous Affairs uh, for Tech Resources, uh, of course, the large Canadian mining company. Uh, and finally, Fiorella Madriaga, uh, who, like Remy, is with Emily Advisory. So, really, uh, a great panel and uh yeah remy i think you get the honor of asking the first question yeah, yeah yes i do and and this i mean this uh webinar is going to be obviously talking a lot about issues in british columbia in 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 in, in canada in, in general and fiorella is bringing in the perspective from from latin america uh adam Bellib advisory will also work in in africa i know there's a series of uh, different participants and attendees from from africa and and as far as papua new guinea i've seen this so we're going to try to provide a larger context on on these issues of our relation with First Nation indigenous communities and try to see, you know, on, on the different perspective how to align them and to work together. Also wanted to mention the fact that, you know, Anbele Advisory works with the Devonshire Initiative, setting up a series of short courses for, you know, companies and, and, and NGOs as a Chatham House forum for discussion on those issues. And so we will develop and continue working on those, especially with, with Fiorella. Maybe the, the first question, and, and I mean, we, we're very lucky to have Karen with us, uh, with a last long history in a, you know, West Wetton, uh, uh, First Nation and in British Columbia with the uh, LNG Alliance. 
Karen, can you maybe just tell us, you know, your perspective, obviously, from your experience and, and how you see, especially from last, you know, current events, the situation in terms of interaction between corporate actors and, and uh, First Nations and the capacity to work together, set agreements towards sustainable value creation and inclusive for both, for, for both sides. All right. Thank you, Remy. And thank you for everyone. Welcome. Welcome to everyone else. And thank you for having me on this webinar. Um, first off, I'd like to sort of just give a bit of uh, context. I, I sat on council from 2010 to 2016 as the chief, and we put together a good negotiating team and uh, to work with, with industry. And so we were able to sign off agreements. And to this day, I still work with uh, government and industry in relation to the, the current LNG pipeline. So what I've taken away from this whole experience and you know best practices in relation to Indigenous people is the first key and the first step is relationship building. I, I can't emphasize that enough. From beginning to end, even beyond, is optimum for best results. Any commitments made must be honoured. Trust is the foundation for the relationship and to make every attempt to keep the same team in place. I think that is really important because we had the sort of the negotiating team and then it, it switched off to a, a construction team and different players. So trust has, is a, a major factor just because of historical practices in the past. And the partnerships between Indigenous communities and extractive companies. First, one of the things that is really important is that to know the history of the peoples of Canada. Uh, <clears throat> the second is, do not come in with an already made plan and expect the First Nations to buy into it. Don't come with a contract and agreement in hand and saying, well, nice to know you, nice to meet you, here you go, sign this. That's not the best approach. I think that it, it needs to be negotiated with the First Nations. There's no cookie cutter approaches here. The third is the, the meaning of accommodation. This piece is critical and crucial. Consultation and accommodation come hand in hand. The other piece is to have a good understanding about the UN declaration in Canada and in the provinces. That is underway um, as we speak. It's uh, slow in coming, but it, it's, it's on its way. Um, it really sets the stage for rights and title in relation to Indigenous people in Canada. And lastly, or there's a couple more points I have. Uh, procurement opportunities is very, very critical as well. Um, I think that there's a lot of Indigenous people that have their economic development business arms in place that are ready to go. Uh, you know, we have the joint venture partnerships that, you know, bring meaningful benefits back to the community. That is critical. Like that is part and parcel of the whole engagement process is making sure that you don't just sign uh, agreement and then that's it they're forgotten about. They, you know, we want to be able to prosper and provide economic benefits back to the community. So I think that procurement piece is very critical to the, the nations that they're working with. Employment and training. <clears throat> we want to move the Indigenous people from poverty to prosperity. We want to improve the quality of life for the Indigenous people. How we do that is by building the capacity within the communities for its members and its citizens. We must make every attempt 
every means possible to close those gaps of inequities. And finally, with, with that is the environment. The project must have the highest environmental standards possible. From an Indigenous perspective, we view ourselves as the caretakers of the land and the environment. We must find innovative and creative ways to ensure our waterways, the wildlife, hunting, fishing, and gathering of food is protected. I can't emphasize all these points well enough throughout the life of, of the project. I hope that answers your question, Remy. It does perfectly, yes. Uh, and maybe I'm uh, before I pass over to, to Andrew, uh, I just wanted to mention that we obviously welcome any questions from, from the audience and we're here to interact as much as possible. We very much value different you know, perspective and, and, and visions here and, and we're here to try to, to set up the, you know, the stage and, and, and suggest best practices. And Andrew, you, maybe uh, that would that, be interesting for you to, to take over. Yeah, I mean, I mean, thank you so much, Karen. You raised a lot of really interesting points and I'd like to turn to Harry now and maybe get Harry for your response. Um, you know, to this, I'd say extremely helpful framework, kind of almost like a shopping list of, of, of how investors should think about how to, you know, prioritize um, the engagement in the best way and get it off on the right foot. Um, do you know, what's your response to that? Um, and particularly from kind of a project reconciliation perspective, um, how do we think about um, some of these points that, uh, that Karen um, mentioned? Well, th thank you, Andrew and Remy, and, and Karen, thank you for that uh, excellent introduction. And of course, Karen and I know each other, and uh, we've been uh, on, on programs uh, or panels together in uh, Calgary and in London, England as well. So I'm familiar, obviously, of, as well with what she's doing in British Columbia and Western Canada. Uh, and first of all, I, I, I'd like to, by way of introduction, also say, uh, whereas Karen is Indigenous, I'm not. I've been working with Indigenous people for uh, much of my adult life. I'm actually born in the Netherlands, in Europe, and uh, much of my, most of my adult life in Canada, and I've also spent a lot of time in Latin America, and uh, my interest in issues around, I, I'm a business school professor. I also hold an appointment at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary and at Oxford. Uh, I have a, an international research fellow appointment as well, but my interest is on resource industries, and environment and social aspects and so I've been uh, involved with um, issues around those in Canada, in Western Canada particularly uh, and in Latin America. Uh, I also spend a lot of time in particularly in Ecuador uh, and did uh, case studies and did uh, a number of projects there and then I did some a uh, fair bit of work in Mexico uh, through uh, the United Nations Development Program working with Pemex uh, so my exposure is not just Canada, it's, 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 it's Latin America as well. Um, and in addition to being a, a scholar and a, and a professor, I've also been involved, as you alluded to, uh, Andrew, with this uh, initiative called uh, Project Reconciliation, which is a collective of Indigenous peoples from Western Canada who are, um, have put in a bid to the Government of Canada, who is the current owner of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, to acquire a uh, majority ownership uh, of the Trans Mountain Pipeline and its expansion, its proposed expansion uh, to transport oil from um, Alberta to the west coast of British Columbia for export to Asia. Um, but by way of introduction, I think rather than talking about my academic um, lessons that I learned, um, possibly um, I, I could start off by talking about my what I learned um, sort of the, the, the road of hard knocks of being asked a couple of years ago, four years ago, 
to uh, represent uh, the Thunderchild First Nation on the board of directors of an oil company, Prairie Thunder uh, Resources, uh, in which they had taken an equity, a shareholder a stake. Uh, so they became the, this First Nation, Thunderchild First Nation became the shareholders of this small privately owned um, uh, oil and gas company. Um, and the company's majority shareholders were uh, based in uh, Dallas, Texas, it's Edge Natural Resources, and uh, the Thunderchild First Nation, and it's a somewhat longer story how they came about this, uh, but the short version of it is uh, there had been a spill on the, uh, on, on the, the major river that, it, that, it, that abuts their, uh, their traditional territories, and uh, they had decided rather than suing the company that they would work together with the company uh, in terms of finding a a, um, a solution that would work for everybody. The long story, it's a somewhat longer story, but that's how they came to have an equity stake in this company. Initially, it was a 16% stake. It's been somewhat diluted now because there've been capital calls uh, moving forward. Um, but as the representative, and I was asked by the chief, uh, Chief Delbert Wapas, who was then chief of the Thunderchild First Nation to represent them, he said, we have a seat at the table, at the board table, um, but we don't want to do this ourselves. We'd like to have someone who has experience. I've been on boards of directors. I have uh, my uh, corporate director's institute qualification. And my first reaction as I had dinner with the chief and uh, another colleague who brought us together, a gentleman by the name of Stephen Mason, uh, I said, well, this is crazy. Representing a First Nation on an oil company board, that's, you know, why would I going to do that? That's, that's just beyond. And then I thought, well, you know, what I've, what I've been been spending my time doing in my career. Um, if anyone's going to do this, maybe I should do this and I'll maybe learn something from this. And I've learned lots from this. Uh, lots of very interesting things and also been some incredible experiences like going up to uh, Thunderchild First Nation for their annual powwows and for other meetings and meeting the people on the nation. And uh, it's it's been just, you know, mind-blowing in terms of an experience. But one of the things that's interesting to me is that I hadn't learned from any of my doing case studies it was the notion of sovereignty. Uh, the chief, and he stepped down as chief, and the new uh, chief called J uh, Chief James Snakeskin, were always talking about the notion of sovereignty. And I thought, okay, so Canadian First Nations, they're called First Nations, but they're not countries like the United States of America or the Republic of Peru or, or Canada. Uh, so, so what are they? What do they mean by sovereignty? Um, they're, they're, and when I, when I spent time trying to understand this, and this came over quite a bit of time, the notion was having being masters in their own territory, masters of their own destiny. And in Canada, uh, particularly First Nations are, in a sense, wardens of the state. Their funding comes from from Canada, from the from the country. And uh, First Nations people have to go cap in hand to the federal government and ask for money for health services, for education. And what is, when resource companies come into that area, the opportunity for First Nations is to work towards this notion of sovereignty, have being masters in their own, in their own lands, uh, once again, which they were traditionally before colonization. And what does sovereignty mean? Well, sovereignty means to me, what I boil it down to is two things. And I welcome obviously Karen's uh, perspectives on this. One of them is, is voice, having a say, having a real say at the decision-making table, not just, you know, sign off on this and here you get a little something, but having a real voice, having 
a say about environment, having a say about protection of cultural, culturally sacred sites, have, just having a say in general, be, being respected and, have, and being a legitimate voice at the decision-making table. And then the second piece is, um, is money. Again, a, a, an independent source of income that can provide the things that the nation that the nation needs, and that the nation can decide themselves what it should be invested in, not for someone else to say, "Hey, we'll give you this or we'll give you that," but an independent source of income. And that that was to me one of the biggest lessons was what does sovereignty mean when Indigenous leaders, and here I'm talking about Canadian Indigenous leaders, what does sovereignty actually mean? And it took me quite some time. I kept I was quite frustrated by, you know, sovereignty. We want Sovereignty, what does that mean? And to me, it's those two things. It's a real voice and it's a source of income, whether it's payments from the resource that, that, that is on the traditional lands or as Karen is talking about uh, opportunities, uh, economic opportunities to, to invest in. So maybe I should stop there, but there's a lot more there. But that was, that, if, I were, if I distill it all down, it's that notion that, that has stuck with me the most. Thank you very much, Harry, and, and um, maybe turning to Heather uh, could get be, be interested to hear your response to um, Harry's distillation of the issues down to those two points, um, and um, you know also to hear from your perspective at Tech Resources, um, how do you approach engagement with the First Nations, and how maybe has that engagement process evolved over time, and to bring you to where you are today at Tech? Thank you. Right. Thank you very much, uh, Andrew. Um, and I, I would like to start by uh, thanking Remy for the invitation to participate today. It, it's a real pleasure to be part of this group and, uh, you know, um, in particular, the opportunity to uh, hear from Karen, who, of course, I, uh, I have heard of before. And it's uh, a real pleasure to, to uh, be hearing more about her experience and also from from uh, Harry and Fiorella. Um, we were able to spend some time together uh, doing some prep for today's session and uh, very interesting to hear their perspectives and looking forward to hearing more today. Uh, so maybe I will just say a little bit more uh, in terms of my background. Um, so I've been with tech for about uh, eight years now. Uh, my primary focus uh, in this corporate role is around um, the uh, policies, systems, etc., to support tech's work with uh, Indigenous communities uh, everywhere that we operate. So tech has operations primarily in North and South America, but of course we also uh, have exploration activities around the world. Um, so, so very uh, interesting work, certainly from my perspective there. Um, uh, prior to working at Tech, uh, I was a Canadian public servant, uh, essentially had a, a full career with the Canadian federal government, um, where I was uh, essentially dedicated to the negotiation of a range of different types of agreements with um, Canadian Indigenous communities right across the, the country, including um, modern day treaties, um, out of court settlements for historic grievances and um, uh, sort of most recently before I left the federal public service, um, social program agreements, including a tripartite education agreement that was the framework for uh, a national rollout in Canada. Um, some really interesting and exciting work that um, 
uh, you know, you talk about uh, education is a pretty motherhood issue in terms of having an impact on um, quality of life for, for uh, Indigenous communities. Um, so, um, and, and maybe I will just quickly mention, I, I'm seeing it's coming up as a, a question in the chat and we're hearing references to it in the remarks already. Um, certainly one of my, my current uh, critical priorities is working with the local Indigenous communities uh, around um, a number of our North American operations where we're looking uh, to permit expansion activities and really digging into what uh, securing free prior and informed consent means in those contexts. You know, in British Columbia, we have new legislation to implement uh, UNDRIP. Um, the federal government in Canada is, is working towards uh, implementation of legislation uh, nationally. Uh, so it's a very interesting and exciting and rapidly evolving uh, context for our work with Indigenous communities and certainly speaks very much to the issues, Harry, you were raising around um, sovereignty and how that's playing out in real time in terms of decision making and input to um, you know, public government processes. Um, so uh, I thought what I would do is focus in on a particular um, uh, area of the work that, that, that is a priority for tech, and that's um, really uh, the agreement making process. So um, this is a critical foundational piece for tech. We think that um, the process of negotiating agreements is uh, really useful and important. And then having that, those um, legal commitments in place uh, uh, really establishes the foundation for how we're going to work together going forward. So, um, you know, I, I sort of, um, I'm, I'm a bit cheeky sometimes where when I say that um, when Indigenous communities approach tech, um, with questions or concerns about the potential impacts of our activities, um, our response is we just say yes. You know, we, we want to meet and it's very likely that we would be open to negotiating some type of an agreement uh, in order to formalize that relationship. We think that process and, you know, whether you call it an engagement process uh, or a negotiation process, we think that that's um, uh, really helpful uh, in terms of just establishing a forum for those conversations and also communicating our openness to hearing what the Indigenous communities have to say. Um, we do have an Indigenous uh, People's Policy at Tech. It's uh, available on our website where we make uh, a very formal commitment to early engagement and um, providing resources to Indigenous communities so uh, to support um, kind of leveling the playing field and to support effective information sharing with us. Um, and uh, so as part of that early engagement or early negotiation phase, you know, we get to know each other. We get to um, like we really want to understand what are the issues of concern, what are the worries, what are the priorities of the Indigenous communities in the areas where we're operating. And then that really informs um, the negotiation process, the, the real details there, and the scope of the agreement that uh, will support our relationship going forward. And, you know, of course, we negotiate um, the, uh, you know, kind of uh, 
large uh, expected style of impact benefit agreements. We've got many of those types of agreements um, with those Indigenous communities in the immediate area where we operate. But we also negotiate a whole range of other agreements, whether it's early stage exploration agreements where, um, you know, certainly our um, sense is that our impacts are going to be quite minimal at that point. You know, we're, we're walking on the land. We want a relationship. We don't want to walk on the land without the support and agreement of the local Indigenous communities. Uh, but at that point, we're not talking about, uh, you know, building a large mine. But we still think an agreement at that point is helpful. Uh, and, and of course, we negotiate agreements right through the whole, the whole process. Um, Yes, Remy. No, no, I, I think I think it's it's quite interesting what you what you're talking about, which is the difference in terms of the the, the the value the life cycle of the project, where you're looking at early exploration, or then you know ongoing you know agreements that have been struck with between indigenous communities or First Nations and and the uh, the corporate actor, and that's where it was so fundamental to listen to to Karen about the idea that you know a commitment has to be implemented and monitored and to be able to continue building trust because this is what we're really talking about when we talk about you know negotiations. Or relation with indigenous communities, uh, and there's a question already on the on, on the chat on on consent that we will actually you know uh, bring to your um, approach probably you know I'll ask Karen and, and, and Harry about it. Uh, but I want also to to reach out to to Fiorella to give a, maybe a, a larger context in terms of, of geographies. I mean Harry already started talking a little bit about Ecuador. Uh, Fiorella and myself we actually were in Ecuador talking with you know Pachacutic and indigenous communities members in Samurachin Chipe at the end of October. She's more a specialist of, of Peru, Chile, and Argentina, but I think the question here is trying to see, you know, what are the stages in terms of interactions with communities uh, in, in Latin America, in Africa, in, or in, in other regions? What are the lessons learned from Canada that can also be, you know, used for, for other geographies? And, and I think a specific issue, which is uh, interesting, we're talking already about um, the idea of, of building uh, agreements, partnership, and so on. But in many jurisdictions, there's still the question of being able to, you know, efficiently survey the, the communities, understanding their rights, understanding what is the exposure for the investor, what is the exposure for the company also, and be able from the get-go to, to create, create a relationship. We see that, you know, in, a, in Apurimac in Peru, we see that in a, with, with issues across, uh, uh, you know, obviously, you know, uh, Austria, Papua New Guinea, the issue with induced rights uh, and First Nations there also. So there's a series of uh, different case studies that we, we actually have it on our, on our database. Uh, but Fiorella, maybe can you just also bring to our attention from the perspective of the government, also you were working at, at the Ministry of Mining uh, before, what is the perception of the role of companies, First Nations, and academic actors into trying to be able to survey this? Sorry if I actually, I was a little broader, just to turn and bridge to, to, to Fiorella. Thank you. No worries. Well, hello, and uh, thank you. First of all, thank you to Amelie and Emerging Market Investors Alliance for the invitation. Uh, it's a pleasure to me to share this discussion with very talented people. Um, first of all, I would like to talk a little bit uh, about my background. My last experience was in the Peruvian Ministry of Energy and Mining. I was the advisor of the Deputy Minister of Mines, and my job was basically to implement strategies to negotiate with the communities and indigenous communities, um, the agreements for the availability of projects. Uh, well, right now I'm in, I'm the country manager at Amberley. Uh, so I work a lot with the prior consultation process and exploration and mining projects. Um, 
Recently, well, the Peruvian Ministry of Energy and Mining hired us to develop uh, guides to for identification and affectations for two collective rights of indigenous people and mining activities. Uh, what I what I hear about uh, everybody's talking right now is really good practices that other countries are implementing in in well with most uh, knowledgeable and more with more experience. The thing is, in Peru, the prior consultation and to work with indigenous or native people was incorporated uh, in the legislation like some years ago, uh, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, the thing is, we have, we also signed a convention for the, the 169, but the, the thing is the government didn't implement the, legis the legislation. So what is happening right now, like um, the companies are a little bit afraid of this prior consultation. And what it was very interesting, what Karen saying is uh, all what we have to implement to talk with the with indigenous people, it's like um, they don't have to be scared about it. Uh, they have to work in employment. They have to work in negotiation agreements. So they don't have to just let all the government do everything, you know. Uh, so I think it's interesting all the practices that other countries has already implemented in, with the indigenous communities. Uh, so they have made a, a more work about it. And, you know, the, all the prior consultation and working with indigenous communities, it's, it, it's not like I would say it's new for us, but we still, we're still learning about it. Um, the companies are sometimes really afraid to to deal with the communities, uh, I always say you don't have to be afraid to, to talk with them. You can. It's better if you are more um, close to them. It's better if you settle agreements. I mean, the government can make uh, their job. It's okay because they are part of this prayer presentation. But also, the companies have to implement more good practice. No, I, th I think that that's very valuable, and maybe just to, to transition and, and turn to maybe the second topic that we wanted to uh, to run onto, which is the kind of, of of innovation in in agreement structure and ownership structure, and we 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 see that the wide range of of obviously issues depending on the jurisdiction, depending on the on the level of of, of relation between indigenous communities and and companies that are very different. You're looking at uh, you know Latin America, Canada, and others, but Canada is probably a, a country where you have those base case practices in ownership structure. I I'm, I will turn first to, to Harry and maybe then to, uh, to to Karen on this. I mean Harry, we we uh, I mean I, I, we've talked about those issues since I was a young PhD student, so I know I know you've been looking at on different cases here uh, on on issues of sovereignty and sovereignty 
sovereign wealth funds, trust funds that could be, you know, together on the on on the, on the structure to be and make sure that the social performance of projects is actually in the best interests of of, of the communities. Uh, can you maybe just uh, take it over from there and, and try to to suggest areas where you know the, the experience that you had in Alberta, for example, could be very valuable for our attendance, which I, I mentioned again are a lot from Latin America, from Africa, and 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 in East Asia. Uh, sure. Uh, and, and what I'd like to talk about is this initiative uh, or collective called Project Reconciliation. But before I describe what the concept is, I want to go back to a, a comment that uh, Karen made uh, that uh, she cautioned uh, companies to not go into communities and say, here's our plan and uh, can you please sign here. Um, that, that admonition to companies applies to Indigenous leaders as well. Uh, and uh, I, so I say that as a preface to what I'm about to say here, because this notion of project reconciliation came out of what I mentioned in my previous remarks, uh, uh, working with uh, then Chief Delbert Wapas of the Thunderchild First Nation. Uh, so the background here is Trans Mountain Pipeline is a pipeline that is an oil pipeline that runs from Alberta to the British Columbia coast near Vancouver, uh, where it goes onto ships and it ships the oil to, uh, to Asia, where the demand is, the biggest demand is for, for oil. Um, and for some time now, there's been an, a need for increased pipeline capacity to get oil uh, to export markets. And Trans Mountain uh, was owned uh, initially by Kinder Morgan out of Texas, uh, and they wanted to expand the pipeline in order to increase the capacity uh, to get uh, oil to, to those Asian markets. Uh, Kinder Morgan got frustrated with the whole process of working with uh, not only with indigenous communities but also environmental uh, activists who also often work uh, together with indigenous communities or help fund indigenous communities uh, to oppose uh, infrastructure development and so there's that that was frustrating Kinder Morgan and Kinder Morgan finally said okay we're done we're finished we're we're gonna not do this thing uh, the government of Canada said, wait, hold on a minute, hold on a minute, we can't do that, this is important to Canada. Uh, the uh, energy industry, particularly the oil and gas industry, is uh, very important to Canada. Canada is one of the largest, has the largest reserves in oil and gas, is one of the largest exporters of oil and gas to the world, and, uh, and provides obviously um, royalties and tax income to, to, the, to, the, to the country. So the government of Canada bought the pipeline from uh, Kinder Morgan of Texas. Uh, so the Trans Mountain Pipeline and its plans for expansion is owned by the government of Canada. And when this happened a couple of years ago, uh, I sat down with uh, the two gentlemen that I already mentioned, the former chief of Thunderchild First Nation, the gentleman Steve Mason, who's a, uh, an entrepreneur business guy in, uh, in Calgary, and a couple of other indigenous uh, leaders, mostly former uh, chiefs of, of First Nations, and said, you know, the initiative that we did with an indigenous community purchasing uh, an equity stake in an oil company, couldn't we just do that same model and do it much larger? And couldn't indigenous communities actually own a significant stake? Uh, there'd been some precedents of indigenous communities owning 10% or 5% uh, equity in, a, in, in, in some infrastructure, infrastructure initiative, but what about actually owning a 51% stake of this pipeline and having a real say, having a seat at the table to have a real say, to have a voice and to actually have income. Could this, is this possible? 
And the indigenous leadership said, well, that, that is something that is of interest to us. We would like to have that. We'd like to have that voice. We'd like to have this notion of sovereignty. Is it workable? So then working with uh, the business guys, the financial whizzes, uh, formed a, a, an initiative whereby uh, it is possible to actually for the Indigenous communities to purchase uh, the 51% stake from the Government of Canada and finance it because this is an infrastructure project that has uh, long-term contracts by oil shippers, 20-year uh, contracts that are in place, so it's a very solid investment and was able to raise the uh, debt uh, through uh, a syndicated bond issue, uh, which is a non-recourse syndicated bond issue, meaning that uh, the uh, nobody could go with the Indigenous communities owning the pipeline if something went wrong and uh, things didn't turn out. Uh, the only thing that would be at stake is the asset itself. That's the only thing that the, the debt holders could go after is, is repossess the, uh, the asset, the, the, the pipeline. So that's the non-recourse bid and a, and a syndicated bond through uh, one of Canada's largest banks. So that was in place. Uh, and then, of course, um, what would be needed was, because this is a collective, needed agreement from um, the various Indigenous communities. So the vision was of the Indigenous leadership was that this should be owned, if we were to go for this, and again, it's Indigenous leadership, working with professionals, finance professionals, myself as a business school professor, others who had expertise, legal, all this, um, the idea would be that uh, this would be owned by the Indigenous communities and Indigenous communities would have to have a, a governance structure where, where their voice would be actually um, translated into corporate board structures and as well as structures to deal with the money that would come from the, from the pipeline. Um, and so then we talked about it isn't just getting the income from the pipeline because it would be some sort of a windfall. What, again, this notion of sovereignty means that what we really want is long-term income uh, that, uh, that would sustain communities uh, in, well into the future, the multiple generations, the notion of seven generations of, of indigenous, indigenous concept of looking forward that far. And keeping in mind that oil may not last 100 years or 200 years, it may, it may only have 30, 40 years of a, of a run line. So that's who came up with this notion of taking a portion of the money investing it into uh, what we refer to as a low carbon indigenous sovereign wealth fund. So part of the money would go to the communities immediately, but somewhere around 80%, and again, I hesitate to say exactly how much because I'm mindful of what Karen was saying, which we learned very much. We go into the communities and we talk, here's the broad concept, how could this work uh, for you? Uh, but there's becoming general buy-in to this notion that we invest a large amount of it into a sovereign wealth fund, which is like the sovereign wealth funds that were set up initially in the 1950s and 1960s in Kuwait, in uh, Saudi Arabia, in Qatar, where you spent time, uh, uh, Remy, uh, with the idea of an income for the future. And this would be invested invested in low carbon initiatives, which is the future economy. So the concept behind it is that uh, it isn't that Indigenous communities is, are given anything. They would commercially purchase uh, this asset and through that and through investing it in the Indigenous Sovereign Wealth Fund in low carbon assets, they would be, the in communities would be transforming the natural wealth, the oil and gas wealth beneath the traditional territories, transforming it into financial wealth in the future low carbon economy 
to provide income uh, in, into the future over the generations. And in the process, through the governance structure the project reconciliation has put together, have a voice uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the building of the pipeline, uh, the environmental protection, again, that Karen talks about. Again, if you're, a, if you're a majority owner, you can decide, we want to put in more protection. We don't want to have a risk of this or that. And we want to maybe change the routing somewhat because there are traditional sacred areas here that we don't want to impact. So you can make those decisions. But of course, not everybody can be on the board of the company. So it was a more, more complex structure that was erected. Anyway, I'll thank you. Yeah, yeah. Th thanks yeah. very much, Harry. That's a very interesting uh, um, sort of case study you've given there and in, in a structure uh, that could make a lot of sense. And I, I, I'd be curious to hear Karen's thought on, on how that could make sense from her perspective um, for um, Indigenous groups. Uh, but also, Karen, um, there's been a question here coming through in the chat that'd be just curious for you to address from, from Miles about how do you define consent? What is your understanding of the meaning of that word? Because one of the issues that you can have is there, there are different definitions that float around. We have the, universe, the United Nations Declaration. You have the concept of FPIC, which is out there, and, and others. And to you, does that create uh, issues behind the sort of um, variation of, of how that can be defined by different players. Um, and um, yeah, sort of how do you approach that that particular very important word of consent? Uh, first, I guess I'll, I'll answer the question and go into that whole notion of equity ownership. I think that um, the whole notion of consent um, just sort of reading through some of the Chilcotin case, that is where the whole notion of consent comes from. Um, from what I understand, it, it goes back to the rights and title holders of the land. And so, you know, you know, this is a whole broader topic. I think it's a webinar of its own, is that whole issue with the Wet'suwet'en people. We have the rights holders and then we have the legal uh, uh, band councils. Um, I guess to try to put it in a nutshell is that both systems like the, the legal jurisdiction government or the Indian Act chiefs and the rights and title holders need to have a conversation to see how this will roll out and you know providing consent because you know we're talking about the people and the land and from my perspective it needs to work hand in hand uh, it can't be just one set of people because the members, the clan members are the same people that those uh, leaders must, uh, you know, address and, and answer their, their questions. So I think that whole notion of consent, it can be a legal one and it's a whole webinar of its own. Uh, and the Chalcotin case uh, set some precedents for that. So going into the whole equity piece, um, just a bit of a precursor. You know, because my background is in social work, I, I, I've spent quite a number of my years working in, you know, front lines, different aspects of social work. And so I've had to really do a whole learning curve in relation to natural resources and economic development, what that means to Indigenous people, most specifically our communities. I read the book Triple Crown by the late uh, Jim Prentice, who's the former Premier of Alberta, and who also worked for NRCAN. And it's a very good read. It kind of gives you a, 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 some historical context as what led, up, led us up to today. 
And in that book, he does reference equity ownership, which I think is a way to go. Um, the notes I've made are, you know, equity um, ownership. We need to have a long-term and sustainable um, avenue to own part of the infrastructure. That, that is the way to go. If we are going to, I use this as note, if we're going to hit the poverty nail on its head, this is the, the growing trend and part and parcel that must be offered. Um, you know, we're experiencing that right now with the coastal gas and pipeline. Um, and the other piece that, that we're experiencing is that we need to take it a step further and assist the Indigenous nations of methods and means for meaningful equity. So that means finding that equity to put into the pipeline. That's where we need to be. Um, we, we need to find ways to help them us to make it work, to set up the system uh, for us to fail will not help us. Uh, but to prosper, there's a win-win-win for everyone. The ultimate goal for Indigenous people is to reach full reconciliation according to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. And how we do that is through economic reconciliation. We want to administer prosperity. We want clean drinking water for all Indigenous people across Canada. We want to close those socioeconomic gaps for Indigenous people. We want to live a better quality of life and be up to the standards of the rest of Canadians. We want to achieve these through major projects. And I think the whole notion of equity ownership must be on the table as part and parcel of, of the deal because what alluding to what Harry had said, that whole notion of sovereignty, we want to be able to stand on our own two feet and not look at, you know, Government of Canada's handouts to, for our programs and services and trying with what meager funds we get to address those socioeconomic issues. So I think to be able to stand on our own two feet is meaningful for us so that we're able to make those decisions and you know look at all of the areas of, of the inequities that, that our communities face. So I think that's um, really critical to any project, any major project going in Canada. I hope that answers the question. Thank you, very strong endorsement. That's great to hear that perspective. Remy? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I thought it was indeed quite, quite interesting to, to get this perspective. Uh, moving, moving on, on the issue of, of overall consent, I, I mentioned in the, on the chat, you know, a specific webinar that we did on this. I've seen a few, a few reaction, you know, talking about, you know, Irma and a series of, uh, of. Um, structure and, and capacity to 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 work on this we have actually a, a webinar that we're building on, on irma probably a, a around may same thing on land issues which is a big topic linked to uh, you know first nations and, and induced community relations with induced communities especially in, in ghana in, in south africa so those are all the topics that have been raised here i'm thinking about putting specific uh, webinar on this so i mean please stay tuned and, and we'll we'll revisit this maybe turning to specifically to heather because i've seen heather you know nod uh, you know actively when karen was talking about you know uh, uh, the the, the perception and definition of consent and being able to build consent that'd be qu quite interesting to, to get your perspective and then i'll turn to you to, to fiorella to get maybe a larger perspective on, on community relations and the steps that different actors you know should be you know following up to be able to build social license to operate on their projects and value creation for all sides so maybe maybe heather first and then i'll turn to, to Fiorella. thank you sure thank you remy um 
Yes, and I, I was nodding because uh, you know, what Karen is saying is uh, you know, really sharing important aspects of that, uh, the Indigenous perspective on um, consent, uh, which is you know, so good for us working on the industry side to hear. And I think that um, Karen in her opening remarks really uh, set one of the themes for our discussions today around um, you know, it sounds a bit trite to, to frame it this way, but you know, that there is no cookie cutter approach. And I think that that applies to the FPIC discussion as well, that, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very new, uh, conversation for industry to be having. And I know Fiorella talked about how companies are, are afraid, you know, this is uncertain for us and, uh, we, we like certainty, right? You know, markets like certainty. Um, but I think that this is a, a critical issue that it's not going to be effective to look to um, government to provide, you know, like a checklist of activities you have to do that is going to result in FPIC at the end, or, you know, the establishment of some uh, uh, clearly articulated, you know, steps in a process. To me, it's another example of where, um, you know, we need uh, open dialogue. Uh, you know, industry needs to be able to sit down with Indigenous communities and understand um, their governance structures, their decision-making processes. Uh, what does an FPIC process look like for an, in, for an individual Indigenous community? You know, Karen spoke about the, the different um, connections between uh, the rights holders and, you know, the, the uh, Indian band established by the Indian Act in Canada. You know, we, we need to be mindful of all of these issues and we can't be relying on uh, government to tell us how to do that, that it really is uh, going to be the result of that open dialogue with Indigenous communities so that we can find a path forward together um, to get to a place where an Indigenous community has the information they need from, from the company, and we've participated in a process together that has them be in that place where they can make a determination around providing or not providing their free prior and informed consent uh, for a particular project. And maybe I'll leave it there. I'm, I'm well aware that this hour is flying by. Yeah, it's, it's going by. I'm not, I know it was, was wonderful if I shared with the, with the attendance that we had a series of, of calls to prepare for this webinar that were already extremely, you know, wealthy in information and in exchange. And we probably will continue rapidly afterwards, but we're happy to, to, to continue the conversation and ask any question. There was a series of questions for Harry, by the way, uh, and others in, in the chat that might be interesting. But first, maybe on, on Fiorella, I think that was, you know, what Heather mentioned is, is, is very relevant. We have different actors uh, involved in this in this question a lot of them have obviously different perspectives in different languages uh, do not know easily how to interact or are coming from different worlds or different visions uh, how is it possible to help you know set up those those negotiation table how is it possible then to continue and and, and survey on the the fact that those agreements are implemented uh, and, and more specifically I, I know you wrote a, a guide specifically for the ministry of, uh, of mines in, in, in peru on, on a relationship with uh, with with communities and indigenous communities what what would be here the, the different steps, as I was were mentioning, of, of you know, to be able to build this trust and later sustainable value for the territory. You, you're on mute, yes. Well, yeah, <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, I think it's important to, to difference two, um, two, two things. 
like one is the obligation to cancel um, of the government like the state has that responsibility whenever the indigenous or uh, native people are directly affected and the other thing is the companies and they have to uh, work with indigenous communities it's i always talk with them and i say it's very different to talk with an indigenous community that uh, another community because indigenous community has they have their collective rights so we have to deal with it and the, the companies have to know how to work with the indigenous communities so uh and the other thing about the the work of, or the job of the, the state or the government is well that that seven uh, minimum stages of the process according to the principles culturally uh, so there are two things and i understand when companies say well, the, the government should tell us uh, what to do or how to deal with them. But I think it's important companies work with the indigenous communities first. And they don't have to be, again, they don't have to be afraid to, to talk with them, to settle agreements. It's all part, you know, if, if the projects uh, of mine of mining, they start in um, in the land of the indigenous communities. I think it's important to 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 implement uh, more best practices and environment with high standards also. Yeah, and th thank you, Fiorella. And, and I realize we're arriving to the last 10 minutes, but obviously we can always, you know, go a little bit, you know, beyond this time. Uh, and maybe just, you know, turning to the different uh, different panelists uh, and, and Andrew first, maybe on, on what you're taking out of, the, of those conversations. And then, you know, obviously steps forward into, into, into uh, you know, either sharing some of the best practices I was mentioning or into improving the relation between the different actors. It'd be great if we can all give like two, three minutes uh, of us, you know, maybe Andrew, then, you know, Karen, Harry, Heather, uh, Fiorella, and myself. That'd be wonderful. I mean, I think, you know, this this discussion was so well laid out by Karen initially um, kind of giving a framework of what um, needs to happen um, to move uh, the process forward. And I, I, I kind of feel like any investor can take that checklist and use that as a, as, um, a, a sort of a talking points when they're looking at companies who are involved in the extractive space. Um, but also, um, you know, this equity uh, perspective that Harry's offered and, 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 and it's, it's it generated a number of follow-up questions, which I wish we had time probably to address about things like government guarantees, potentially a whole different regulatory process uh, surrounding um, you know, indigenous equity stakes in these projects. Uh, I think that's uh, a very exciting new direction um, that uh, this whole area, you know, could, could, could take and something also for investors to be very aware of. So it's uh, great to hear all of that. Thank you, thank you. And Karen, do you maybe want to chip in with, a, with some concluded words here? Okay, just to sum up and sort of uh, look at the whole discussion that we had and the points that were made, relationship building is critical and crucial. Procurement opportunities for Indigenous communities is also critical. Employment and training to build capacity within communities is important. The environment, again, this is another critical component, the highest environmental standards possible. 
all throughout the project, not just on day one, not written on paper. It must be practiced on the ground. And especially in relation to what Harry had mentioned that uh, any cultural sites, um, sacred sites, they have to be protected. And the last piece is on equity. We must find ways forward for Indigenous people to close those inequity gaps on the socioeconomic front. And that is one of the ways we do it. And that whole notion that that the question of consent that also needs to be brought into this as well. So uh, thank you for having me on this panel. I really enjoy it. Masai. Darren, it's always a pleasure to, to, to talk to you and, and I'm bridging to, to maybe Harry uh, and trying to, to tie things up together and, and issues that we might want to continue revisiting in the, in the future and in future events. Please uh, chip in. Okay, uh, first of all, uh, uh, Karen made a, a comment about uh, we'd like to manage prosperity. One of the things that I've uh, heard time and again from Indigenous leaders is we're tired of managing poverty and we'd like to manage prosperity. And that has really rung true to me and that's part of what we're, we're involved in here. Uh, the other thing that in terms of one thing to add here, this process of engaging uh, is is very difficult and very time consuming. And even though I spent a good part of my career studying and doing case studies in various different places, it has still surprised me. We've been with Project Reconciliation at this for two and a half years on a daily, weekly basis. And part of that is the engagement and, and um, part of it is we're in ongoing discussions. We actually have a, a bid into the Government of Canada and I've been personally involved with uh, weekly conversations with the Department of Finance who are the owners of, of the Trans Mountain Pipeline right now. But more importantly is the conversations with communities, uh, the, the First Nations, the Indigenous communities. And uh, that has been very interesting. What we've more recently done is is kind of shifted the, the communication rather than the formal engagement we're coming to the community we're meeting with chief and council uh, we are now we have some wonderful people in our team and i'm specifically thinking of uh, two um, women on our team one is a young woman in her mid-20s uh, liana wolfleg who's an indigenous woman from the uh, the, the Siksika first nation and jen turner who's based on on the on the coast and they're working together and reaching out to communities not through formal channels but through the informal channels and they like to talk about sort of the the women's channels and the the through the you know the grandmothers and so and so knows so and so and one of the things that i've really learned is how connected the indigenous world is people are do live in in individual indigenous communities or first nations but they have family members in other communities and much of what i've learned is the communication that goes on through many of these informal channels and so uh, we're, and it's a, it's a slow uh, process, but our, 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 our engaging with the different communities that are, that are of interest to, to this uh, initiative, setting, out a, setting up a low carbon uh, indigenous sovereign wealth fund with, fund with financing with income from the pipeline is through that informal process, uh, which uh, defies any sort of uh, notion of what a government might look like or a corporate process might look like. But we're finding that that is actually an, an effective way of, of communicating. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you mentioned, you know, the key issue of communication, of informal communication, steady communication, building trust. I mean, we've we've worked on on, on this several times. And maybe turning to to to, Laura, to Heather for the for the uh, concluding word. There's also a series of, of questions on economic inclusion. I know that's that's a focus of of yours and, and of a series of, of experts on the on, on this panel. Maybe do you want to explain a, a little bit on, on tying down this communication, economic economic inclusion? How does take you know work on this very briefly and and and. <coughs> What, what are your concluding words on that on this panel? Right. Uh, thank you, Remy. And uh, I, I know time is tight, so I will keep my, my comments quite brief. Um, to, but first of all, to just uh, really re-emphasize um, one of the things that we've heard um, from all the speakers today, but particularly Karen, about the importance of relationship, that this isn't a transactional type of uh, activity we're engaged in, that relationships are really critical to success. And I would also um, emphasize uh, the message around the role that industry can play in economic reconciliation and supporting that shift from uh, managing poverty to managing prosperity. Uh, to me, that's uh, a critical opportunity for the extractives industry is to really work with Indigenous communities to support that, uh, the achievement of that goal. Um, you know, and I think, uh, speaking about the experience that um, I've had through negotiations at Tech, we've had many discussions with Indigenous communities about the um, equity issue, and we have not yet negotiated an agreement that is um, sort of truly representative of those, of those equity uh, interests. Um, I suspect it's uh, largely due to the uh, riskiness uh, associated on the cyclical aspect of mining that it's, it's it doesn't present the same opportunities as uh, an infrastructure project um, but I would put that out as a challenge that you know this is something we need to be putting our minds together to solve is how how can we continue to find ways for indigenous communities and mining companies to share those benefits of mining in a way that's really going to meet the needs of indigenous communities. And I'll, I'll leave it there. Great, thank you very much. Uh, I'm, uh, again, uh, uh, plenty of, of very good notions on which we can actually build on in future conversation. Uh, and maybe Fiorella, your, your last word on this uh, and then uh, taking into account the perspective of, of different countries, the needs from companies or the need for training also from communities. You know, what could be, you know, uh, when you have companies that try to engage with communities, when you have communities that need to have the resources to be able to have a fruitful, fruitful negotiation and, and pull up the, the implementation on those of the negotiation, what would be your takeaway on this and your suggestions to, to different actors? Uh, very shortly, uh, well, the engagement process uh, with indigenous communities is very important and also the conversation with them. The government will do its job, but also the company should work in the relationship with the indigenous communities to provide better benefits and also prosperity. Uh, supporting communities is very important. As I said, it's different to, to just deal or to negotiate with the communities that live around projects than the indigenous communities. It's, it's a, a very different way they, we have to, to respect their collective rights and we should, the company should know how to work with them. That's wonderful, thank, thank you. you. Just to, to answer a question that there was on, on the chat, 
there is obviously a recording of this webinar. Uh, we give me a little time to put it together, and 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 we'll actually upload it on on uh, on uh, on our website. Uh, we also will have a transcript. So same thing. I mean, feel free to uh, send me a message. Same. Uh, I mean, you, you know how to to reach me on LinkedIn, for example. That's that's usually a, a very good way to do so. So we will provide this. Uh, we, we do a lot of uh, of work on cross-sectional collaboration, as I said, with the DevonChain Initiative, a series of workshops and classes also. So those are available also. So just reach out to us if you need some more information. Information and and I and I'd like to use maybe the last few seconds again to uh, to thank our panelists. It's uh, I'm very very fortunate to be able to invite to my living room once a month, even actually more regularly, my friends in the industry uh, around the topic of common interest. So thank you again, you know Heather, Karen, Fiorella, and the guys Harry, Andrew uh, for for joining this morning, and uh, we'll follow up on the on the questions that were that were provided. So thank you again, and and, and have a lovely day and a lovely uh, weekend soon. <laughs> thank you. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye.